That's all good. Let's do that, right? So Friday morning, our Detroit team is pulling out at uh, 6 a.m. So, and if you want to be involved in that, right, Timberwood Church blog spot, it's in the uh, little uh, program thing that you get handed out. Look under Detroit trip, follow the team, Timberwood blog spot. You see it right there? Makes sense? You don't see it. Put your reading glasses on. At any rate, they're pulling stakes at 6 a.m. Eric is with them. Amanda's with them. Joy's with them. It's a great group of individuals. Okay, they're pulling stakes at 6 a.m. I want to say goodbye, you know? And so the night before, I set my alarm on my watch. I want to hang with them just a little bit before they take off. My Sunday alarm, you know, goes off at 541. And it's more like a backstop, right? Because this time of the year, my body wakes up before, especially if I set the alarm, my body wakes up before the alarm goes off. And I think even if I get up early for this, I can go for a bike ride afterward, which I did, and it was lovely. Sure enough, I wake up at 5-ish. Get out of bed. So there's two people in my bedroom. Only one of them was awake. The other person doesn't want to be woken up. No need to wake Tanya. I was successful. Navigating stealth mode. Grabbed a cup of yesterday's coffee. Warmed it in the microwave. I was out the door. Dog didn't even bark. Zella didn't even move. She just looked at me like, we don't have to get up yet, do we? Back down the driveway, down the lane, out to the road, then to the state highway. Was passing gull on the left, hole in the day on the right. When I looked down at the clock on the truck, it read 541. I had left my watch with the alarm engaged on the bedside table, two feet from Tanya's head. And there was nothing I could do besides feeling instant regret. And that's where we start today. Verse 1, chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Can you imagine waking up the next morning and be like, wait, did I just get rid of my queen? Yep, it's documented. It was the 500 BC equivalent of video evidence on a smartphone. Interesting side note, okay? The Targum, okay, the Targum is an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament with rabbinic notes, okay? Little commentary in the margins and that kind of stuff, okay? According to the Aramaic version of Esther with your rabbinic commentary report, when the king woke up, he had, how do we say the name? It reminds us of something. Mamukin, right on. He allegedly, according to the Targums, the Aramaic version of Esther with rabbinic commentary, King woke up and had Mamukin and his buddies executed for their poor advice. Now, whether or not that actually happened, we don't know. Regret, though, is something most of us do know, right? I think we've all been there, right? And what happens next is absolutely key. The king has some regret or something. He wants a new queen. And probably more than just the physical realities or abuses, depending upon your perspective. And while the king isn't given to honest reflection of the role that he played, as far as we know from the text, it's obvious the Hebrew writer thinks the decision getting to this point is suspect. And so I guess, what do we do when we've done something wrong? 
what do we do when we feel regret? Do we own it? Are we afraid of it? Had a conversation five seconds ago, right? Of how when there's wrong in our past, people seem to be afraid of owning it. Wrong that exists in our past, whether it was yesterday or five years ago or 50 years ago. If it's not owned, are we afraid of the thing that we've done wrong? Have we asked for forgiveness? Have we waited long enough to ask for forgiveness? Have you ever done this one where you're immediately aware that you did something wrong, okay? So like Friday morning, I get back, I open the door so quietly, right? And Donnie's like, it's on the other side of the bed and I'm angry with you. I don't want to talk to you right now. I just want to get out of the space. I apologize, but I didn't go deep into the apology. I just got out of the space. 6.05 a.m. on Friday was the wrong time to ask for forgiveness. Later in the day was a better time to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes, especially if you're a guy or if you're like me, you're like, oh, I did this wrong thing. Please forgive me. And your loved one is like, just wait for a second because I'm still angry. And she has every right to be. Every right to be. In fact, if you can't figure out a good time to ask for forgiveness, then you need to learn something about forgiveness. Sometimes you have to wait long enough to ask for forgiveness when you feel regret. On the flip side of that, what do you do once you've asked for forgiveness? Do you still hang on to it? Are you captive to it? Or ignoring all those things, do we double down like King Headache and hold a beauty contest? I know what will make me feel better. Verse 2, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins in the harem, in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, second to last king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day 
Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months of oil with myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Sheashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. He would not go into the king again. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Persian romance. The young man have an idea. We've got a solution. Let's have a beauty pageant. Except it's a lot darker than that, which is saying something. Round up all the beautiful young women. The king feels bad. Whoever makes the king feel good, next queen. Odd way to choose a monarch, even for the Persians. There's, there's no talk of a strategic alliance here, no consolidating familial power. And what will happen is an outsider, an exile, will assume the highest levels in the government. Tomasino talks about how aggressive the other written evidence that exists from this period of time, how aggressively Persian culture protected their order of life. It was almost caste-like. And now there is a potential for an outsider to achieve something that would be impossible for an outsider to achieve. Now, I would love to tell you that the women had a choice, but they didn't. They would be auditioned and simply chosen on the male gaze and desire and then taken. Consent didn't matter. A Hebrew idea of God joining a male and a female in a covenantal relationship called marriage wasn't anywhere in sight. It was simply a powerful male taking. There is a word we use in the English to describe this. It describes a felony. It's rape. It wasn't called that back then. It was legal, especially for the king. But it wasn't right. There's no thought of what's right here. It's just, let's style them the way the king likes and find a replacement for Vashti. And one of the enduring themes in the book of Esther is how women are viewed by the Medes and Persians and how women are viewed by Mordecai, how women are viewed by God. Wisdom finally enters the picture through Mordecai. We find out that he is the functional of equivalent of... Rhymes with... Memucan and the six other dudes who may or may not be alive. Mordecai 
In verse 6, we see this word, although it's not spelled exile in our English translations, we see this word exile repeated three times. And now, an individual who is probably a child of individuals who were exiled is going to be carried away again. We're repeating the emphasizing of this individual's status. Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin. That will prove very important later, as we talked about two weeks ago. Obviously, the writer likes him. He has this compelling story, right? He cared for a child that was an orphan, who is his cousin, right? Daughter of an uncle? Yeah, cousin. But he says he's a father figure, and he keeps tabs on Esther. She is never far from his inquiries. Wisdom comes in the name of Mordecai. But it also comes in the name of Esther. Introduced as Hadasha, Esther, beautiful to, to look at. The text reduces initially Esther to her physical attributes. And I get being offended by the description. But can you imagine for Esther? Oh, the delight in being underestimated. Esther's name, probably from the Persian Ishtar. It's the name of their female goddess of love and war, which is just a wonderful twist in the story, because that's what's going to happen. It could also mean star. And in the Hebrew, the name Esther sounds a lot like, just let me hide. How Esther views herself. Obviously, the text doesn't tell us. But I think she views herself as more than a pretty face. And I think, based on how the king responds to her, there is more than sexual attraction going on, although that is going on, and she doesn't have a choice. She is one of seven. Again, this number seven. Remember the seven eunuchs, the seven advisors, and now seven individuals in Esther's council. Her father's name, Abihail. Abihail and Jair would have been brothers, right? We see this individual who will blossom before our eyes and this picture of wisdom. There's also Haggai, okay? He knows the ropes. And, and does he quickly see the potential? I think so. Does he quickly see Esther as something more than a pretty face? Yeah, I think so. The next queen would not only need to be beautiful, but would, would have to have qualities outside of that physical appearance. There would need to be intellect. You would need to be able to keep up with the king. How would Haggai have advised her? It's guess, right? He probably knew the king better than most. Tell a story, a gift, a thing that could be done. It could have been many things. And it was also that one thing. And again, she didn't have a choice. Mordecai, in the first bits of wisdom, right? We find out who he is, his relationship to Esther. Keep your head down. Stay alive. Who knows what else is going on here? To be in this spot would have been challenging, right? And it will question or challenge this notion of what is wise and what is the right thing to do. Both in terms of the people that Esther turns to, but also for her own life, what is the wise thing to do? 
in a given situation? What does wisdom invite? What posture does wisdom take? The first bits of advice is that keep your head down. Don't tell who you are. Now, it's not lying per se. It's certainly not forthcoming, and it presents an interesting ethical question. Should I conceal my identity or immediately reveal myself to those around me? Another interesting story from the Old Testament, this cat named Daniel. Daniel immediately says, this is who I am. I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to do your practice. This is who I am. Take me or leave me. Some people are very comfortable with that Daniel vibe, right? Because it's like, wow, you're standing for it, right? And hey, don't hear me wrong. But Esther is in a different situation entirely. And we could say, well, why didn't you immediately stand and say, hey, I worship the true God, and I'm not going to go into your harem, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to engage in any of these things. And you kind of have to wrestle with that in the text. Because having read to the end of the text, we know how the story ends out. And because of how Esther behaved, there was redemption and there was salvation. Often we're presented with this dilemma, right? We're in a given situation... Do we lay it all on the table? Do we hold something back? How do you engage? Talking with a person who doesn't know Christ. Do you lay it all on the table? First words out of your mouth. Here's the deal. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're going straight to hell when you die. Oh, great. Can I have another cup of coffee with you? And yet, in some situations, the best thing we might be able to say to another person is, have you thought about your eternity? How do we intersect with the world around us? There is this reality in the book of Esther that you cannot miss. How she chose to intersect. And I believe, again, the unseen power, the God of the universe, is at work in her life. Just like the unseen power... The God of the universe was at work in the life of Daniel. And I don't think the two responses fight against each other. I think both were in tune to what God wanted them to do in a given situation. And so, yeah, as I think about engaging with someone about the truth claims of Christ... I ask myself a question. Do I have to agree with everything before I can be friends? Or can I be friends and then can we talk about the things that we agree or disagree on? And some are challenged by that notion, and I get it. I get it. Words like syncretism can enter in and you're like, well, you just slide towards the mean and all of these things. And yes, 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 yes. I get all, I hear, I hear you. But if you have to think exactly like me before we can be friends, we probably won't be friends. Because you probably aren't going to like the way that I think. 
But if we can be friends and talk about the reality of who Jesus Christ is in our lives and how he inspires us to live in a way that reflects who he is and how he lived, and if our focus isn't on who I am or who you are, but if our focus is on the standard of Christ, then I think we got something. Please, I'm not suggesting that Esther did anything wrong. To the contrary. But to keep her identity secret, it would have meant she had to do just about anything and everything to stay alive, adopt the customs, adopt the food, even give up the ideals that she would have had as a Hebrew woman waiting for that day when that Hebrew boy would have said, let's do this thing called marriage. Keep playing the game. Keep playing the game. Figure out where God's at work. The text concludes, 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, which is interesting, right? Because this whole mess happens in what year? The beginning of chapter 2. Year 3 of his reign. Now we're in year seven of his reign. So it's taken four years for chapter two to happen. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I love it. Rulers just don't change, do they? Come on my side. Here's tax relief. It, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's a trick that's as old as the book of Esther, and we still do it today. She's looked at in a certain way, both by Mordecai, And now by the king, she's distinguished herself. She is a high potential leader. She has this kindness about her. She makes all the correct moves. She says the correct things. She was a leader. People liked her. People trusted her. They liked to be around her. She could move up the halls of power. She could go higher. She could relate to those who are on lower rungs of power. An easy way about her. She had this confidence. I anticipate she always had a kind word. If you play poker, she had a huge stack of chips with everyone. Again, do we see evidences of the favor and the grace that she received as, as something that was encouraged, enabled by God? Without question, the unseen power is at work, enabling. What would it be like to be a person who is found in this way? Can you, just, just imagine, if you can for a second... Putting yourself in these shoes, right? And maybe if you're a guy, you can never get there. Maybe if you're a woman, it's still even very, very hard. But you're basically round up for a cattle call. 
everything that you had hoped for? And yet, Esther places herself, or is placed in this place, is placed in this place. So that the things of God could happen. Seriously, the themes of wisdom and redemption or salvation are replete through the book of Esther. And Esther is in this spot less than she would have wanted, allowing the things of God to happen through her life. And Esther finds herself to do that which is necessary so that the things of God can move forward, even though it is not a straight line, a line that many would have questioned. Even though she'll have to sacrifice things that she thought would be true as a woman of God, I think we can say she gave sacrificially of herself to lead others to safety. And how can we not see that? And how can we not be challenged by that reality? A sterling example of a God follower. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you, and as we unravel and unwrap and digest this wonderful book, challenge us, make us uncomfortable, allow us to wrestle with the themes that are present in the text, allow our appeal to ultimately be to you. to be present in the things that you are doing. If it's regret, Father, let us ask for forgiveness. If it's being open to following you, even down what seems to be a dark hallway, let us follow you. Let us be so secure in our beliefs because we are so close to your Son and so close to your word that the rest of the world is just noise. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.